0: We're going to continue our theme. We've got this week and next week um, on our following Jesus in all of life theme. And um, we've moved on to the sixth one, which I'm going to explain in a moment. Um, but um, sort of key text, I suppose, for this morning. And you could argue key text for the church. Um, because any, any, uh, any way a church wants to measure its success, if that's the way to put it, is down to how to doing with this, really. Right? And this is the, what we sometimes refer to as the Great Commission. And it says this in Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, This is just before he goes back to heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Beautiful. I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So over the last number of weeks, we've explored um, these five or six pra- six practices. Well, we're on the discipleship. We did mission before discipleship there, just in terms of the order. And, um, and before I just jump in a little bit further, i um, And just confirmed, even during worship, what I want to say, first of all, is as we've taught through these five practices to date, so prayer and worship, creativity, hospitality, generosity, compassion and justice, and um, mission, I just really want to remind you that we um, are not teaching these as rules to obey. We're not teaching them even as a kind of scheme of behavior that people have to attain to, or behavioral traits that you have to adopt in your life. Ultimately, what we really want to be about as the people of God and as the church is falling in love with Jesus and living in the power of his Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that, right? We want to be people who fall more and more and more in love with the person of Jesus Christ and be filled with the power of His Spirit in order to become like Him, in order to carry His heart, in order to be filled with His power and presence, in order to look at the world in the way He looks at it. And the danger uh, when we teach things topically, if that's the way to put it, like we're kind of doing in this series, is that sometimes even without intention, we can it can come across or can be perceived that we're promoting a kind of scheme of behavior that everybody has to live up to. And what I want to say is, just in case we get that impression when we come and here's another thing that we have to live by, I just want to say that's not the intention of why we teach this series. The intention of teaching this series through these practices is because love looks like something, right? Jesus' life looked like something. And I suppose for us, we felt it best defines the characteristics and the traits of Jesus, who we want to become like, because remember, Jesus is the where the truth and the life, yeah, and we don't want to just believe in the truth of who Jesus is, we want to follow in the way, and these words help describe the where of Jesus. And uh, and these, teaching them gives you some understandings of the shape and the substance of what Jesus's life looks like and what our lives should look like. But first and foremost, over and above all of that, what we're saying is, if you simply try to live up to these rules or up to these words, they're not rules, if you try to live up to some kind of scheme without the infilling, without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the constant reliance and dependency on the Spirit, then you'll just get discouraged every week. And um, and so I just want to say that, and that's the reason why we come together to worship. That's the reason why we spend some time when we're together in worship asking the Spirit to fill us afresh. That's why we come together on Wednesday night without an agenda other than to worship Jesus and to allow His Spirit to fill us so that we can become the people that God has called us to become. Because Jesus who showed us all of these traits, was the one, as the Son of God, who showed us his dependency on the Holy Spirit. He was zero resistant to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, everything he did was empowered by his presence. And so, the sixth practice that we come on to today, discipleship, we are getting right to the heart of what All of this has been about and the reason why we've been teaching on the the definition that we've come up with for discipleship, because it means different things for different people in their heads, is very simple, following Jesus in all of life. Our kids have been following pretty much the same kind of series, in case you haven't been aware, and uh, because we want intergenerationally for us to understand that as a community we follow Jesus, yeah, he is the one that we follow, and we follow him in all of life, and uh, we could say that in some ways the discipleship one that we're going to look at is a culmination of the other five that we have looked at. The, it kind of holds it all together. And, and the reason that we're looking at discipleship um, this morning is, is not just so much because we want to be disciples. Uh, we're talking about discipleship because everybody should be able to do the Great Commission. As far as I am aware, Jesus, when he gave out that Great Commission, which we just read at the start, all authority's been given me. Now go and um, make disciples of all nations. I, I I don't think that was for the elite. I don't think that was for the professionals. Right? We have a little saying, and we're going to finish with it today. If the Great Commission is for everyone, okay, who believes the Great Commission is for everyone? Okay, okay, brilliant. Right? So if the Great Commission is for everyone, then everybody's got to be able to do it. Is that right? It should it should follow. It's kind of logical. If Great Commission is for everyone, then everyone should be able to do it. And so we're talking about discipleship today, not just because we want to learn how to be a disciple, because in a sense, looking at the other five practices was part of that. We're looking at discipleship today because we want you to think about, we want me to think about, how are we doing at discipling other people? Who are we intentionally journeying with and walking with that we're pouring our life into in order to make them and to see them become more like Christ? A core part of the Spirit's movement in the church is realizing that we're not only called to follow Jesus, but we're called, I believe we're called to invite people into our lives like Jesus did, allow them, and this is is where this gets really kind of quite challenging today, I believe that we are probably, I could go as far as to say, called to invite people into our lives, to have a backstage pass to our lives, to watch us live, to imitate our lives, so that they too can walk into Christ-likeness. Now that pushes all of our kind of Western individualized kind of me and my we family kind of buttons, doesn't it? <laughs> It kind of pushes, because some of us didn't even know that we were called to, like, really, that we could be like Jesus for a start, and who would want to follow our lives? So we're going to try and get over that this morning. But as well as that, we're going to obviously need to be challenged a little bit about the kind of barriers and boundaries that we set up, but nobody can actually get in and watch our lives, because that's what we're called to. If the Great Commission is for everyone, then everyone should be able to do it. It, mentioned the word, it mentions the word Christian three times in the Bible it mentions the word mentions the word disciple 269 times okay it mentions the word christian 3 times it mentions the words it mentions the word disciple 269 times so we're missing something aren't we we're missing something i think in the western church about personal salvation for me and and, and, and my life so i can make sure i get to heaven And not really kind of leaning into what it really means to walk in the ways of our Rabbi Jesus and then to become someone like him that invites others into that life. And so I want us to think a little bit more today about what a life of discipleship looks like. Okay? The original design of our lives, which we've kind of done with all of our practices. So let me just do this for a brief moment this morning. um, To trace back to our original design. Our original design, I think, even... Uh, Right back at the start of creation, I think you could argue was to be a a disciple, to be people who steward life, who are fruitful and multiply. Remember that in the first pages pages of Genesis? To to reflect, to produce and reproduce life, and to steward that life really well. I think that's part of our original, to, 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 to harness potential and to tend to life in the right way. Part of our image-bearing was to uh, reflect God in how we exercised his loving rule over the ones that will be produced and reproduced. You could say it like this, that God always wants us to remain, I believe, childlike in our faith. right? Come to him fully dependent in our all-sufficient Father. But he doesn't want us to remain childish, right? There's a difference between remaining childlike and growing up, yeah? So sometimes we remain childish in our faith, like we throw the toys out of the pram when we don't get what we want from God. You know, you have to grow beyond, like, God, if I don't score a goal and I lose that football game, then you don't like me and I'm in a huff with you or something, right, you know, know, which is what I was like when I was 14 or 15, you know what I mean, I don't know if I can really serve God, because we didn't win the day, you know, right, you kind of grow beyond that, like, it's all right to pray that, that's sort of, right, but, you know, or because you didn't give me my car park parking space, God, and I really asked you for that, like, you know, and I was, like, really earnest when I was driving up the street, and I asked you for that car parking space, and you didn't give me it, then, you know, God, I'm, you know, you're like, come on, what else is going around the world? What does what our, par, our parking space really matter? Now, should we pray for the parking space? Of course we should, because we want to be grateful, thankful people. I don't have a problem with that. I just have a problem with the fact when we don't get it, sometimes my, my reaction would be to that. That would be childish, considering the fact that there's people in the world that are just praying for their next meal, or praying that they might survive persecution, or praying for all sorts of big reasons. Yeah. So God didn't want us to remain childish, but... He wants us to remain child-like, and so he wants us to be adults. And what do adults do if they have the blessing, particularly, of meeting somebody and falling in love and getting married, and they have kids? What do they do? They steward life, right? They 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 don't neglect those who they get to care for. Well, they shouldn't. They're called to disciple. They're called to invest. They're called to steward life. They're called to to not even just do the nurturing in those early years, but to help them grow up into loving sons and daughters who would then will become maybe husbands and wives, who then will then become grannies and da-da-da. And the cycle continues, but it all comes out of the family being the family and investing and in stewarding life well. And when you think of this in the context of discipleship, you begin to realize that part of our destiny as image bearers of God was to input into the life of others, to love, to love other people into life. Okay? Are you with me? So part, part of your destiny I'm proposing is to love other people into life. And obviously it starts with your own family being faithful with that, first and foremost. And that might be your primary form of discipleship at the moment, your children and who your children are becoming. That's where it starts. But God wants other people to be imitating that life that you live. And so when I talk through all the other practices um, over the last few weeks, I, I mentioned the journey of Israel and how So, like, sin basically stops us from being all of those things that we were originally designed to be and to do. But God wanted to show us how he wanted to rediscover that. And we've looked in the journey at almost all of them at how Israel, God's chosen people, were to reflect that. And how they ultimately kind of failed in all of those ways, and Jesus came to fulfill that. And it's the same with discipleship. You could argue that Israel was chosen by God to be a witness to the nations. In a sense, Israel were chosen to disciple the nations, right? Because through you, you will be a light to the nations, Isaiah chapter 49. God wanted through his people, this is the story of the Old Testament, to reflect who he was, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. To reflect to the other nations who God is. And they didn't do that very well. In fact, and this is, there's, there's a kind of strong implication and challenge in this for us. In fact, they were discipled by the other nations instead of them discipling the nations. They worshipped foreign gods. They followed the practices of foreign gods. You see, here's the very kind of challenging and slightly scary thing, particularly if you're a parent. The question is not whether you're being discipled or not. The question is, who is discipling you? Because someone is discipling you. And here, here's the challenge. Someone is discipling your kids. Someone is discipling them. Just who is it? Is it Jesus? Is it the ways of the Lord? Is it your life? Or is it their mobile phone? Is that is what the, Because subliminally, we're just taking messages in... We're taking thought patterns in. We're taking messages in every day. We're being discipled by someone. Israel were being discipled rather than by God because of their love for him. They turned away and they allowed themselves to be discipled by the other nations. And like all of the other practices that we learned where Israel failed, and Jesus came to fulfill the story of Israel and to show us what life really looked like. And a central part of Jesus' life was discipling people. One of the characteristics or the traits of his life was inviting people into his life to help them become like him, and so I know we've read this verse loads, but I just want to read it one more time um, because it's been, you know, it's 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 just really really helpful at helping us understand not just how we believe in Jesus in the terms of the truth of who he is, but how it helps us understand how we become like him. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son, right? I love the idea that the message brings out here in shape, right? So think of yourself as because of sin, we've been bent out of shape, but in Jesus, we're being put back into shape through his love and for the forgiveness of our sins, the Son stands in the line of humanity he restored. Sorry, the Son st- the stands first in the line of humanity he restored. So Jesus is the prototype human being. The, the one that humanity is supposed to become like. The firstborn. We see the original and the intended shape there it is. If we are bent out of shape, we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in Christ. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed up by calling them by name. And after he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So we see the intended shape of our lives in Jesus. And all of these other practices, we see him modeling out. The intended shape in prayer and worship in creativity, in hospitality and generosity, in mercy and justice, in a life of mission. And when we take this to discipleship, we see the intended shape of our lives in Christ. And so if Jesus discipled people, and that's the intended shape of humanity and of every image, bird that's born into the world, then we too follow him in that way. And so what I want to say today is, Jesus in Jesus' mission, which we looked at last week, Central to that mission was a method of discipleship. So let me try and explain what I mean here. Jesus came to earth, as we looked at last week, with a mission to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to watch heaven break in on the earth, to destroy the works of darkness, to put the enemy to flight, to defeat him, to introduce and illuminate our hearts to a new sacrificial way of love, which was the fullness of God's heart, and to establish the family of God on the earth. This was part of God's mission. But What I want to offer you today is that the method that Jesus chose to fulfill the mission was equally part of the mission. So in other words, the method was in the mission. So what was the method? What was the method of the mission? Jesus came to destroy the works of darkness and to bring the kingdom of God but the method of doing that was number 1 he did it in intimate relationship with the father he walked with the father every day he did all of these things in communion with the father i don't do anything unless my father tells me yeah he he did it uh, through the power of the spirit as a son this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus did all of this as a perfect son, like you and me are called to be. Walking in communion with our Abba Father as sons filled with the Spirit. So he did it at one with the Father. But then secondly, he did it with his friends. It seems to me remarkable that Jesus, who's the Son of God, who can raise the dead, heal the sick, you know, cause the waters to kind of stop doing what they're doing, calm the storm, he doesn't really want to fulfill his mission on his own. That is remarkable. It shouldn't be that remarkable to us if we know our Bibles, I suppose, because we know that from the beginning, God's always wanted to do this with us. He's always wanted to co-partner. But Jesus like picks like like the kind of guys that we wouldn't pick for our team, people like us. <laughs> right? He picks them. He brings them around him, 12 of them, a ragtag bunch of disciples. And he says to them, I no longer call you servants. I have called you friends. So Jesus' mission to bring the kingdom of God to the earth is fulfilled through the method of relationship with his father and relationship with his friends. A family on a mission. And he called them into his likeness. He called destiny out of them. He helped them understand who they were really created to be. He discipled them. And so the implication for us, I think, as we join Jesus in mission, so if you heard anything over the last couple of weeks, and you were hopefully a little bit inspired, and hopefully a little bit more challenged and encouraged to help fulfill the mission of God, and if we as a church want to fulfill and have a life-practicing mission as the very impulse of what it is to follow Jesus, then the method of how we do that is going to be really, really important. And it's not going to be Alan or Chris or any of the leadership team standing up here and having a brilliant idea of how we're going to reach Porto Down. It's going to be as a family on a mission. It's going to be by all of us choosing a life to walk in relationship with the Father and to open our lives up to one another and to others to disciple them into life. That's how the mission gets done. The method is in the mission. They both work together right? So sometimes what we are expecting in church in the Western world is for some, because it's a quick win. If somebody could just get up, even sometimes evangelistic kind of campaigns, as amazing as they are, like we just want the wins, don't we? And we want them quickly. We want just, can we just preach a message, thousands of get saved, and then we'll all feel better about ourselves because the town's being reached. But nobody is ever really being discipled into life. And, and so what we, what we really want to think about is, can we be truer to the New Testament, to the Scriptures, and can we allow them to challenge us and to challenge our own lives about how we walk together into Christ-likeness and how we disciple people? When some fervent young people come to me and really want to follow Jesus, and they're 19, 20, and they're longing for... Like, I love that. Like, if I can get, like, a young person like who's fervent for revival, who loves the church, who wants to see the Spirit of God move, and they're like all up for it, and they want to preach and teach and all of that kind of stuff. I I love that. I love, in the right sense of the word, getting my hands on someone like that and saying, right, let's do this together. I love that, right? But usually what I say is, go and get two people, three people, and just start pouring your life into them. Just start pouring your life into two or three. Because the delivery mechanism for making disciples is the local church. That's how Jesus did it. And that's what he's calling us to be. People who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. Jesus' great commission that we read at the start was the central part of it was to disciple, not just people actually, but eventually nations. This was the mission. We fulfill the mission of God to see the kingdom come when we choose to embrace the method of the mission, which is to make disciples. And so, let us look over the next 15-20 minutes here at some of the core elements of Jesus' discipleship so we can grow with him. What did Jesus' discipleship look like? I think I've got four or five points here. Core elements of Jesus' discipleship. Number one, he called people to destiny. I love this about Jesus, right? Ultimately, Jesus kind of walks into our lives, our everyday lives, and go, here, come on out of that kind of everyday thing that you're doing, although we might send you back to that, but come on out of your own little story that you're living. That's a better way to put it. Come on out of this, your own little story, and walk into the big story of God. I want to invite you into a bigger story. I want to invite you into life, like real life. And God has always been doing this. Abram. Just like wandering around, or doing his little farming kind of wandering thing that he does. Abraham, you're going to be Abraham. You're going to become Abraham. Welcome to the story, Abraham. You're going to be the father of nations. Jacob, the dreamer, who was a little bit arrogant when he was younger, but a leader becomes. What does he become? The leader of the greatest empire of the day, essentially in Egypt. David, the shepherd boy, what does he become? The shepherd king. Jacob, the deceiver, what does he become? He becomes Israel, a prince with God. God has been always trying to call people out of their everyday lives, out of the bentness of the shape that they live in, into the shape of his character in order that they might fulfill his story. And then Jesus comes and shows us this even more explicitly when he's walking along the road one day and he comes up. Oh. He didn't walk in candles, right? But he, he, was, he came up to a bunch of people one day, men, normal, ordinary, working class men on a beach, fishers, fishermen. And he says to them, follow me and you will become fishers of man. He calls destiny. You only think you're living your life now, Jesus is essentially saying. Do you only think that you're fulfilling your purpose? Wait till you see what I can show you. Wait, do you see the kind of story that I am pulling you into? Your life's never gonna be the same. Follow me, and you will become fishers of men. Some of you know my friend, he helps out here on Friday mornings, Dixie. I remember the time he got saved, I was there. Got to lead him to Jesus because I've known him for most of my kind of teenage life. And then I remember the day that we felt the Lord was speaking to him about doing some work for church. And he'd been building and working in factories and doing all of these things. And I remember praying with him one day and I just remember the tears starting to run down my face as I felt the Holy Spirit was saying, today it all changes, Dixie. Never going to go back to that. Today, you've become, you're becoming a fisher of man. God's calling you out of the story that you've been living in into a whole other story. And it's not like, by the way, you have to work for a church to do that. But something was happening in that moment. And he's probably made, led more people to Jesus in our churches over the last five or six years than, than, than all of us put together. Because God calls us out of our story into the story of life. I have come to give you life, and life it's all, in all its fullness. Ultimately, Jesus was calling people to Christ likeness, to becoming like him. A vision for his nature and character in our lives. Be perfect like I am perfect. Ultimately, Jesus thinks we can become like him. interested in our survey, we asked the question, something along the lines of, do you think you can be like Jesus? 75% I think of people disagreed. Interesting. Do you feel you can be like Jesus? Because if you don't, And I grew up for years thinking, no, no, I can't really. And the reality is, in terms of like ultimate perfection, like Jesus, I'm I'm not sure that we can get there in this lifetime. Should we stop trying? No. And the more important question is, does Jesus think you can? Does Jesus think you can be like him? The answer to that question is an emphatic yes. An emphatic yes in the New Testament. So you have to like choose whether or not you're going to allow your heart to choose the desire of Jesus for your life. Do you think you can become like Jesus? Ultimate ideals, but ultimate grace. Grace after grace after grace. From his fullness, John says, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace to become like Jesus. And Jesus is calling fishermen, I mean, the guys that never made the kind of rabbinical system of the day, the guys that didn't do well at school, didn't do well at sport, didn't do all of that stuff, you can be like me. Follow me, and I will call you into the life that you only dreamed that you could have. And this is the beauty of what discipleship is all about. It can only happen in and through his power. And that's why when Jesus calls disciples, called us to make disciples, he said this. It's crucial baptize them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. In, order, in other words, immerse them in, in their gospel identity. Not the identity that their work gives them. Not the identity that their sports team get them. Not the identity at the part of the community that they come from kind of gives them. No, no, no. Baptize them in their gospel identity. Who they are in the love of the Father. Who they are because of what Jesus has done. Who they are in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Baptize them in that because then they can fulfill the destiny of their lives to become like Jesus. Yeah? Yeah? That's what we're called to do as disciple-makers, to bring people and immerse people into their gospel identity. Number two, he didn't just call people into destiny to become like him. He called them to leave everything, and the two go kind of hand in hand. In calling people to life in all its fullness, it followed that Jesus called people to let go of everything that would prevent them from fulfilling that destiny. In order to embrace this fullness of life, they were going to have to let some stuff go. In fact, they were going to have to let everything go. In the words of Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up the cross and follow me. Look for whoever wants to save their life will actually lose it. The stuff that you're holding back from Jesus, you're actually going to lose Anyway. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, Jesus had this radical grace. Radical, radical grace. So people orbited around him because they were loved for who they were. They were loved unconditionally. And Jesus met them at their point of need and loved them unconditionally. But he didn't want to leave them like that. And so he wanted to call them into this life that only he could give them. But in order to do that, he's like, you let go of your sin. You let go of your wounds. You let go of the identity that you're clinging to from other places. You need to let, let, let go of your idols if you really want to be my disciples. This is why we call it Radical discipleship. This is why what we talk about are cruciform discipleship. Radical discipleship is a forsaking of all. It's fully surrendered, yes, to the lordship of Jesus in order to become more like Him, w- whatever it means. Persecuted churches saying today that in the 50 top kind of persecuted nations, 11 people every day. 11 people every day are being martyred for Jesus. 11 people every day. So 11 people today around the world will lose their lives for their love for Jesus. It's incredible. Because they have forsaken all. This is the cost of discipleship. And Jesus never, ever pulled their will over the eyes in that one. He made it really clear. Unless you... Unless you love me more than you love your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters, your own family identity, you cannot be my disciple. I remember when I was 17, 18 years old and I felt the Lord saying to me, I, need, I want you to leave home for a year, Alan. I want you to go and find me. I'm thinking in my head, how can I leave my dad? How am I going to do that? And I remember one day, i saying to me, can you not not do something local, son? (laughs) I said, well, maybe. And then one day he came down and he opened the Bible and he turned to the scripture. No, he didn't turn to the scripture. He turned to the one in the old King James. It's not not that nice the way it puts it, but it essentially puts, unless you hate mother and father, which is the word that's used to basically say, in comparison to the love that you have for me. That's what it's really getting at. And he read me that verse and he said to me, son of Jesus is calling you to do this you need to do this yeah this is the cost of discipleship to follow jesus into his death in order to experience his life it's tough but ultimately what jesus is saying is the perfection of my love which i have for you can't be fully yours until you let go of everything that's holding you back from that perfect love it's not like jesus is up there going well you know, I'm withholding all this love for you because I'm a bit insecure and I need to know that you really love me before I'm going to give you my love. That's not what it is. right? It's Jesus is a perfect father who's saying, I have perfect love for you. And if I let you settle for a love that's less than the perfect love that is for you, then I'm not a perfect father. But for the joy of giving something up, you will know, This perfect love. If you untether everything in your heart, that's more important than me. And so at the heart of discipleship is the question, what do you love more than Jesus? And if you want to get really practical about it, you ask yourself those questions. (laughs) What do I spend my time on? What do I spend my money on? What do I spend most of my time thinking about? You ask yourself those questions, and the Holy Spirit very gently starts to reveal the things in your life that have tethered to your hearts a little bit more than the person of Jesus. The other one, actually, is dreams. It's a tough one to give up. Dreams that you have, good dreams. But dreams that have become more important to you and their fulfillment than the presence and person of Jesus. But Jesus calls us to follow him into that kind of life. When we asked the question in in the survey... Do we regularly evaluate how much we're counting the cost? 25% said yeah, very much so. 61% said somewhat. And 12% said not very. Thank you for all your honesty in this, by the way. It's really, it's really, really helpful for us. And um, and I suppose the question is, how can we become a people that haven't become so uh inebriated by the culture in this world that everything's just got a little bit safe? <laughs> And secure? How do we really continue to count the cost of what it is to lay down our lives for Jesus, whatever that means? I uh, want to just read you something here. So, listen to this story. Philip Yancey, in his book, Rumors of Another World, tells a story of the remarkable life of Ernest Gordon. I think I've got picture on this. I'll come back to that, right? Of Ernest Gordon, who was a British officer captured by the Japanese in World War II. Gordon was put to work building the burma siam Railway through the thick Thai jungle for a potential invasion of India. The Japanese hated those who were willing to surrender rather than die, and their treatment of the soldiers was appalling. Prisoners were beaten to death if they appeared to be lagging. They worked in 120-degree conditions, Uh, And eventually, 80,000 men died building building that ill-fated railroad. Gordon himself got sick and almost died. The prison camp was a case study of survival of the fittest. People fought, attacked, and schemed for the most meager of provisions. Selfishness and hate were the ethos of the camp. Then one day, something shifted. Listen to this. One day, the returning work, work crews was missing a shovel. This is sometimes called the story of the missing shovel. The Japanese guard began screaming that if it was not returned, he would begin shooting the prisoners. All die, all die, the guard shouted. Tension blanketed the group. He lifted his rifle to shoot, and one man stepped forward and confessed, I did it. The guard brutally beat him to death in front of the group. Later that evening, it was discovered in a fresh inventory of the tools that the guards had simply miscounted. This act of selfless love transformed the ethos of the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, No greater love has any man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. The truth of that verse lived and demonstrated, began to shake the whole camp. And they go on to describe how the whole ethos of the camp changed because one person radically chose to lay down his life for the sake of others. And in the midst of extreme darkness, something like the kingdom of God started to get planted in that camp. They started university, started reading the Bible together, started loving one another. They started sharing their food, started doing all the things that look a little bit like a colony of heaven breaking forth in the midst of darkness. Why? Because one person took seriously very seriously the cost of what it is to follow Jesus and that's what we are being called to and Jesus calls us to make disciples he's calling us to be those kind of people he's uh, he's calling us to continue to repent, to turn around, to change our thinking, to give up everything that's not our highest good because he has life for us. He is life in all its fullness. Life, like this story tells us, that moves beyond the grave. Life that doesn't make sense to the world, that you would lay down your whole life to find a life that's breaking in from another world. And so we need to deal with the affections of our heart, because in order, inordinate or disordered affection, loving ourselves or others more than God, always bends us out of shape. And so, if we want to get back into shape, we have to give stuff up. We have to follow the call of Jesus to lay everything down. Really, really serious. A couple of other points. He called Jesus to a life of, sorry, Jesus called his disciples to a life of intimate and intentional relationships. Everyone was welcome around Jesus, okay? Jesus came into contact with loads of people, and you could say he discipled everyone. But the call to discipleship was quite intentional and focused, and the bar was high, as we've already talked about. So the bar in terms of grace was really low. Everyone was welcome, because that's who Jesus is, and that's the kind of church we want to be. Everyone's welcome. But what he was calling people to was actually to die, to come into fullness of life, he had to let everything go. And so in order to help people do that, he had to take time with them because we're quite out of shape. So he took three years with the disciples and he called them into a deep friendship of committed love. He was teaching them his kind of love, to be committed to him and to be committed to one another in covenantal love. a new command I give you," he said them. "Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another." Jesus was teaching them love, sacrificial love, covenantal love, how to give of yourselves for the good of others. And while Jesus loved the crowds, he wasn't seduced by the numbers game. See, most churches these days and most Christian leaders, and I can get seduced by this as well, I have to go back for this, they kind of think success looks like this. If we can get three, then we can get 12. If we can stand in front of three, then we can stand in front of 12. And then it can like, stand in front of 72. And then like you know, we'll be really, really successful because we'll have thousands come to our church or I'll be standing in front of thousands of people and I'll be a really gifted leader. And that's my kind of view of success because I have kind of built up this wonderful ministry. And yet the thing about Jesus is, if you really read the Gospels really well, you realize he's usually walking in the opposite direction. I mean, like, he loves the crowds. He loves the crowds because he loves everyone, and he's preaching to the crowds. But when it comes to his mission and his method, he's usually walking in the other direction. He spends a bit longer with the 72 than he does with the crowds. He spends even more time with the 12, and then he spends even more time with the 3 investing, pouring his life into them. I mean, most of us think that's a terrible strategy for success. And yet this is what wins the world. This is what turned the the world upside down because Jesus invested his life into the three, particularly Peter, James, and John. And even before that, moves beyond that to spend lots of time with the Father, with the one, being with the Father. And yet what I've found in my Christian life is you see, when I was younger, I thought I had to do that, right? But the more I kind of realize is, if you do that, you end up getting the thousands. Because people want the presence of God, not a good gig on a Sunday. That's what they really want. They want the presence of God. And If we're not carrying the presence of God because we've been with the one, if we're not making our lives intentional around the three, then... We're not, I don't think, following Jesus as he calls us to. He spent a lot of time investing in the three. In our kind of service, 60% of people said that they're in some form of accountable relationship. 40% aren't. I just really want to encourage you. If you just don't have someone in your life who you can walk with, let us help you with that. But you weren't supposed to do it alone. None of us were supposed to walk this alone. And in fact, even more than just being accountable, God's asking you to model your life for some people in order that then you can do that for others. And that, that's what our life groups are all about. And Stephen's going to talk a little bit about that next week. And then finally, Jesus was calling people to life-on-life apprenticeship, right? The good thing about Jesus was, as I said earlier, he gives people like a backstage pass to his life. For those of you who weren't that enamored with the school system, you can give a big hallelujah to this. Because as much as Jesus wants us to think to do well at all of that, most of his discipleship happened on the road. It was on the job training. He did it as they walked and as they talked. Discipleship is an ongoing apprenticeship to Jesus. It's walking and following uh, his way. Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. He's also your rabbi and your Teacher, it's where you kind of just learn how to do life. Like, my my dad has taught me loads of things, like by sitting down and talking to me, but like, he hasn't, he hasn't, to be honest. It's just been more like just watching him. And every now and again, he says something to me, like in the car, or when we're kind of driving home from a football match, he just like throws something into the conversation, like, son, you know, when I was younger, not now, of course, you need to be careful the way you're speaking to your moment a minute. You know and then you you just knew right okay, he's, he's probably right, isn't he you know and the fact was he didn't like to sit me down necessarily scold me all the time, but he came and watched me on a cold Saturday afternoon got really really cold as I played football and in the car on the way home he decided just to throw something in that I needed to think about. I was just apprenticing how he showed me how to do life I remember one time winning uh winning a competition that my sister entered me into in when it used to be crazy prices, all right? And uh, it was a Nintendo 64. Who remembers those, right? A brand. But I'd already got a PlayStation, and I thought to myself, I'm going to sell this and make myself about 100 quid. And it was like 15, and I thought this would be amazing. And uh, my uncle, George at the time, still does, looks after the YMCA in Lurgan, and he said to me, I'll give you some money for that. I'll give you whatever you need for that, and if you want, I will use it in the YMCA. So I was like, happy day, I'm going to get 100 pounds. My uncle's going to give me 100 pounds or whatever it was. My dad had this conversation with me one day, and he said, son, I've never asked my brothers for anything. I've never asked them to pay me for anything. I was like, oh, flip. (laughs) I'd really like you to give it to your Uncle George. I was like, no, seriously? Like 100 pounds when you're 16 or 15? You know? But I've never forgot that. Never forgot that. You just learn how to be a generous, giving person. I'm so glad he taught me not to be tight. I'm so glad he taught me not to be stingy. Yeah? Just by watching. Just by watching. You know, most of us, any of you who have went through trades know all about this kind of apprenticeship. That's what Jesus did. Let me kind of try and sum this up in the next minute or so with a a story. This, This guy here is a man. Has anybody ever heard of Stradivari? Yeah, so if you haven't, don't worry. He was an Italian fourth-generation violin maker, okay? Stradivari produced 1,116 instruments, 960 of which were violins, and around 650 of the instruments he survived from the 18th century, including 450 to 512 violins. When creating a violin, Stradivari would carefully, now listen to this, he would carefully choose the wood, he'd weigh it, he'd feel its balance, He'd measure its qualities, not by the guidebook or by the slide rule, but in his hands. And then he would just bring his apprentice up to his elbow. And the apprentice would stand at his elbow as he kind of felt, measured it out, touched it, tapped it, and listened to the sound. And the apprentice would stand at his elbow. and could never explain why certain pieces were chosen and certain pieces were rejected. But they felt in their hands what the master had showed them what to feel for. And I think discipleship is much more of an art than it is a science. Something that you learn by watching more than something that you just get by sitting with a textbook. You come up to the elbow of Jesus. You read the Gospels and you reread the Gospels and you spend time in Jesus' presence, and you get the feel of what it is to live the kingdom life, to walk in his ways, to know how to speak to people. See, some of us know what to say. We just don't know how to say it. Some some of us know all the right answers, but we just haven't learned the feel of the kingdom. And Jesus wants to bring us to his elbow, (laughs) and he wants us to learn. And that's what he did to the disciples. It was something like this. I do, you watch. That's come follow me. That's what he did at the start, didn't he? And then after a while, come follow me. Come come and watch. I'm going to do it, and you watch. I'm going to lay on hands on the sick. I'm going to preach the gospel. You watch. And then number two, I do, you help. What's that? That's feeding the 5,000. Okay, I'm going to do it, but you're going to help, right? I'm going to pray. And then, you know, they come to Jesus and say, we're going to, you can't send these people away hungry or whatever. And Jesus says, you feed them. And so Jesus prays and then he he gives them the bread and off they go. And in case you think it was like suddenly a big mound of food appeared, that's not the way it happened. The disciples had to move by faith. And just as they broke off bread, just just didn't stop. Right? I do, you help. Then number three, you do and I help. And then we'll have a wee chat. What's that? That's the sending out of the 72. Off you go. Lay hands on the sick, cast out demons, all of that kind of stuff. They come back to Jesus, and they're like, the demons even got kicked out when we called on your name. This this actually works, right? This is what they're coming back to Jesus, and Jesus said, okay, let's have a wee talk about that. Let me give you some feedback. Don't rejoice that the demons can be cast out. But rejoice in this, he said, that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He's giving them feedback. He's talking to them all along the way. And finally, we're back where we started this morning, yeah? You do, and I watch. I'm going back to heaven. All authority's been given to me. Now go you. And I'm going to send you my spirit so it can continue to give you a bit of feedback, so it can continue to speak to you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And he told them to do it, to do what he did in the power of the Spirit. And so as we finish, some questions for you to think about. How are you walking into, intentionally walking, I mean like not just showing up at church on a Sunday and hoping that just simply by osmosis or something, you're going to turn into Christ, you know, Christ likeness. How are we intentionally walking into Christ-likeness? How are we challenging ourselves about the cost of discipleship? Who might the Spirit be asking you to be accountable to? If you're not in any kind of relationship where you can be discipled, I just really want to ask you to carefully consider that and to give thought to that. And then, who is the Holy Spirit calling you to pour your life into? Who are you being challenged to say, is there two or three people I can just be faithful with? I can be really, really faithful with. Don't get seduced by having to stand in front of hundreds and thousands. Just who are the one or two that I can just be faithful to and see the kingdom come? Amen. Next week, um, Stephen is going to be sharing on uh, more of this and more of how we can get involved practically in some of the structures that we put in place. We think we have put some tools in place that can allow everyone to be involved in some form of discipleship. So I want, to, I want to encourage you to come along with Expectant Hearts because the mission is only fulfilled when the method is in the heart of the mission. Yeah, And that's to make disciples of all nations. So let me just pray. We'll not sing today because we're out of time. Why don't we just stand? Can we stand again? Let me pray over us this morning as we just close this out. So if you don't mind, if you're if you're comfortable, if you just we just receive from the Lord. Even if you want to just hold your hands out as a sign of receiving from the Lord, I just love to pray over us that the authority of this scripture on the screen that Jesus said He was given to us, that that authority would just come on us as individuals, but as a people, to make disciples, to make disciples of all nations. Just have a sense, even just before I do that, there's some people that you can't even at the moment just get your head around the fact that Jesus thinks that you can become like him. Just life feels so broken and such a mess at the moment, or you feel a bit of a mess at the moment that you can't even comprehend that thought. And I just really want to pray for you this morning because Jesus Jesus in all his love and grace stands before you today and says, come follow me. Come follow me. Just trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust you. I will take your story and turn it into something beautiful beyond what you can desire. I'm going to lift you out of your story and draw you into the big story of God and all the things of your life And all the struggles and the pains of your life, I'm going to use them for the beauty of my kingdom and my name and my glory. And so, God, I pray for those today who are feeling like that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that they would feel a sense of come, follow me. Come, follow me. God, give us the grace to leave our nets, to count the cost, and to follow you. And God, I pray that as a body here today, that you would grace us with fresh authority, God. With fresh authority to make disciples of all nations. Lord, we make a decision today. We want to say corporately, God, that the last thing we want to try and do is just get people to be like us. We want people to be like you. And so we need your spirit, God. We need your spirit. We need the dynamic, lived energy of your spirit Just at work in our hearts, challenging, convicting, calling us deeper into yourself, purifying our hearts, infilling and overflowing out of us. Holy Spirit, we need you. We're desperate for your presence in these days to be the people that can disciple the nations in order to see your kingdom come. So fall afresh upon us, we pray. Come and fill and us with power. We pray for every life group that will happen this week pray for every small group that will happen this week. God, we pray for fresh authority, fresh grace to come in order to grow up together into the likeness of Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Thank you for your presence, God. Thank you, Lord, that you long for this. This is your dream, God. This is your dream for threes and fours to meet around a cup of coffee or in a factory or in a car, wherever it might be, in a classroom, God. Talk about how we could walk further and deeper into the ways of Christ in order to see your kingdom come. God, we ask, O oh God, that your dream would be fulfilled in and through us as a people in these days for the extension of your name and your glory in this town, God, and that so we may overflow into the nation and the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh man! Put some music on here. We'd encourage you to go and get the kids if you have some. <laughs> um, we're going to put some music here, and and we'd love to encourage you. Some of us are.